You are listening to the Edu Salon podcast, a space for connection and conversation around education. Each episode, Dr. Deborah Nedelitsky talks with a global education thought leader to provide insights into where education is now and where it might move next. Hello, and welcome to the Edu Salon podcast, recorded on the lands of the Wadjuk people of the Noongar Nation, to whose elders, past, present and emerging, I pay my respects. My name is Deborah Netalitsky, and today I'm delighted to be speaking with Jen Buchanan. Jen is an educator who's worked in schools around the world, including the British International School, Riyadh, in Saudi Arabia, the Green School in Bali, Think Global School in the USA, and Press Hill School in Melbourne, Australia. Jen is a convener with Future Schools, an organisation that describes itself as a community of innovative educational leaders collaborating to evolve and transform their school communities so that all learners are enabled to explore their holistic potential. In her work, Jen partners with school leaders to co-design their futures by facilitating opportunities for collaboration, engagement and innovation. Welcome, Jen. Thank you so much for having me here, Deb. Delight to speak with you. It's a pleasure. So let's start the conversation. And I guess I was reflecting on your really wide experience as a traveller and someone who's worked in schools and in education around the world. And I thought you could begin by exploring how those global experiences or the global nature of your experience influences the work that you do in education. Absolutely. Great place to start. And you're right. Most of my professional career has been overseas or in countries other than Australia. And I guess as far back as I can remember, there's just been this deep desire just to understand different cultures and how different communities work, how people around the world live differently. And it's really driven most of my professional career. The second part to that that question of how does it influence my work today, since returning to Australia and uh, taking up work with future schools, there's been this increased desire as well to bring some of those experiences from overseas and, and look at when we talk about the future of education or evolving or emerging trends in, in education, I guess it's this deep knowledge that we're becoming far more interconnected. Our world is becoming far more global, transcending many of those traditional borders, especially over the last couple of years if we look at how we work. And I'm noticing a real need to start to explore some of those experiences I've had on the ground and how I can bring some of those experiences into what we're doing in our education in Australia. So that interconnectedness is certainly something that I've noticed as well. And I think it was something that certainly as a school leader, I leaned on and leaned into during the pandemic because being isolated and and as an educator, you're so much part of community normally, face-to-face community. And so having that stripped away, and I know you're in Melbourne, so there was even more stripping away than we had here in Western Australia of that kind of togetherness. And so I think we sought togetherness in remote ways. And so I think there was a, an interconnectedness where people were really very generous and hungry for giving to and, and receiving from one another. So I, I definitely have felt that. And I wonder then if you're thinking about things like culture and community and cultural competence and global competence, what does that look like? Because I think sometimes in Australia, we can really be very limited or Australian centric, maybe in our views and in our the way that we look at education systems. What do you think those kind of competences look like for schools, but also maybe for students? I'm going to take a step back first and just for our audience today, define how I'm using the word culture today, just for our collective understanding. And in the 
conversation today, when I refer to culture, I'm talking about the shared story, the shared beliefs, the shared worldviews of a, of a group of people. And, and, and culture is actually one of those words. It is a, it's a fairly contextual word. And again, just for our audience today, I, I found quite fascinating when I looked at the etymology of that word, its origins, it actually derives from a, a French term, which in turn derives from a Latin term that talks about fostering growth. It talks about ever-changing, evolving and adapting. And like nature, I think it's important to recognise culture is one of those things that is not static. It is always ever-evolving, changing and, uh, and adapting. Our young people in terms of education, and especially over the last couple of years, our young people and, and ourselves included, we are increasingly working in this far more interconnected world where we do need that global competence. And increasingly, our young people as well are going to be working with people of different cultures. They're going to be working with people that hold different worldviews, different experiences. And increasingly, we're going to be needing to work together to look at what are these complex problems, these global problems that we need to be working together to solve? And they will not have simple solutions. So how do we build the competence and the capacity of our people to be able to work in communities of these multiple perspectives and cultures? And I guess on that point, increasingly as well, recognising Australia is a place of deep cultural diversity. In fact, we're as a nation, we're one of the most multicultural and multi-ethnic countries in the world, which I found fascinating in returning to Australia. And in fact, speaking to you over there in WA, it's at the highest percentage. 35% of West Australians were born in a country other than Australia. Across our, our beautiful country, we speak hundreds of different languages. And in fact, one in four households in Australia don't actually speak English as a, as a primary language. So there's some really wonderful complexities to kind of unpack and bring to the surface when we consider how we build a global competence, how we increase the capacity of our young people to work across different cultures. I'm just reflecting that I'm first generation Australian. My parents are both from two different countries, uh, different continents, actually. You talked about the interconnectedness is global competence actually about knowing and understanding other cultures or is it partly that openness to diversity and seeking to understand others and about knowing that we make better decisions and we're better problem solvers when we have people from different viewpoints, different cultures, different backgrounds in the room or at the table? Yeah, and that's a really good point. Possibly part of that conversation there as well as then how do we actively build those communities that bring in different perspectives and worldviews? Because naturally our own biases, uh, we're attracted to people that, that think the same. Even myself personally, if I look around at my own group, I tend to socialise with people of similar age groups, uh, similar sort of backgrounds. So how do we have this opportunity or how do we leverage the opportunity within our schools and our wider communities to really build those communities that allow us to, I'm going to just say it, challenge our own biases? to be able to be exposed to different perspectives that will possibly even challenge our own uh, our own thoughts and our own opinions. Um, because as you quite rightly said, when we have that opportunity to explore different perspectives, unpack different worldviews and opinions, it helps those, those elements of provocation help us kind of define where we sit and what it is that forms our own opinion, what is it that forms our world beliefs. And I often think that with our schools of... Um, how do we leverage the opportunity to really build those communities? So, Jen, you describe yourself as a future-focused educator and you do work with the Australian organisation Future Schools. I'm wondering what that means to you to be a future-focused educator or for us in education to be working with looking to the future. 
Look, there's so much talk out there about the future of education and it is not a new area of research. People have been talking about this for a while now. I, I was reflecting over this over the last couple of weeks, actually, having taken some personal time out and, and doing a bit of a hike. And at the end of the day, if we could work together just to make education far more purpose-driven and human-centred, I reckon we've got it right. It's so many young people. The statistics are out there, different reports, but you know, we could take any one of them and um, the numbers are high of student disengagement or students struggling with mental health issues or students that are refusing to go to school. And yeah, look, school works great for many young people. Absolutely. But how about we just work together and, and get it working for all young people? That's what I would like to see when we talk about the future of education. So working for all young people and being human-centred, some of the things I've heard recently are around some of the barriers to that. People talk about, you know, education as being a 200-year-old model based around the fact that children go to school while their parents go to work and we unitise everything into these little chunks. I mean, I've been a teacher my whole career, so my entire life has been in term, day, one-hour period (laughs) And I still talk about recess. You know, it's an interesting way to live an adult life uh, in these little units of measurement. Uh, But I wonder, like, what are the barriers to us thinking about making education work for everyone when actually things like when parents are expected to be at work or when the the buses go or or what sorts of ways might we rethink things for a future-focused education for our students who are going to be living in this future, but in ways that are possible without dismantling the entire mm. society in which we exist. Yeah, look, um, look. interesting enough, you actually speak to somebody that really likes school. The irony is I actually really enjoyed the structure of school and I enjoyed learning. So I, was, I feel like I was kind of one of the lucky ones. That's not to say school wasn't tough. There was definitely, if I look back on that time, there's elements of it that were, were super tough. But you're right in your point. If I look back on it, when I was in school, and that was what, a couple of years ago? No. (laughs) It's a couple. 25 years. Yeah, a couple of years ago. And I look at the the experience my niece is having, happening, uh, having at the moment, sorry. Uh, She's gone into year eight. School does not look significantly different for her. And yet the world that she lives in is way more complex than, than what I experienced going to school in the 80s and the early 90s. It requires a shift in our thinking, a shift in just even our understanding of school and working together to to craft this new narrative um, so that all of our community, not just our school communities, but our wider communities can get on board with some of the shifts that are happening. One of the shifts I experienced working at Green School and at Think Global School, my two most recent schools, was a shift away from the traditional classroom. Classrooms can be quite isolating. They can be quite isolating in the sense that, you know, we close the, the front door and we send out a soft signal that this is now a contained space. The outside world belongs outside and we contain this inside world. So first is a shift around actually how we think about learning spaces. Let's shift our thinking away from a classroom and get beyond the, the closed door. The second shift, I would say, is a shift away from, as you talked about, these traditional subjects. We've got, we, we're hearing from our young people this craving to be involved in working on real-world problems. Let's have a look at, and I experienced this at both Green School and Think Global School, of students deeply engaged in projects and, and learning that was connected to their immediate environment. 
this is not to say, you know, let's not get rid of all of the subjects and and, uh, and move them aside. But let's have a look at just offering some, some alternatives there because for many young people, their reality of school is classes of predetermined curriculum, which they kind of have to follow from subject to subject. Let's create opportunities there for students to be more purpose-driven in their learning and more opportunities. And then the third thing, uh, the shift I'm th- seeing is a shift with our educators. And like our students, our educators are working in a far more global and interconnected world where their ed- educators are microblogging on platforms like Twitter, whether they're attending or hosting global webinars or jumping onto podcasts, um, whether they're reading, writing, publishing on platforms like LinkedIn and Medium. Our our educators have a huge opportunity as well to be connected to people around the world and to be sharing our crafts. So there would be the three main shifts that I would say that I'd like us to focus on. Um, And those shifts are the first one, shift away from how we perceive a classroom to be, what a learning space needs to be. The second shift, a shift away from just having traditional classrooms as the the predominant learning that takes place in the school. And the third shift to recognising our professionals are are great at what they do and they're working in this far more interconnected and global world as well. So when we're coming back to that that comment that you made around around human-centred and that actually it's about the autonomy and agency of everyone in the education system, including the students and potentially the staff, and I'm thinking about the idea that a lot of what you're talking about is allowing or encouraging or facilitating students to be agents of or designers in their own learning and actually educators listening to what their students' aspirations are and what their students are interested in in order to co-design maybe that education experience. Mm. I remember very early on um, one of the most confronting experiences I had was having to go through this process of unlearning. And it's tough. If you've been a teacher for 10, 15, 20 years and you've been an expert in what you do, I've been teaching visual arts for many, many years and um, very, very comfortable in that space. Here I was at Think Global School and we suddenly transitioned across to doing all project-based learning. And I can remember one of the first kind of driving questions we had um, talked about virtual reality. And I was like, I can remember just being way out of my depth of just going, I, I know, no, and my first instant reaction was just like, I know nothing about this topic. But what a journey it was to kind of be able to take a, a step back and, and to be working alongside my students on, the, on this project. We we're in San Francisco and just having the support of the leadership around me at the time to recognize that the feelings I was going through were feelings of ambiguity and vulnerability and not knowing and to have a leadership team around you that will support you in that journey. And that's key really for, for any any leadership teams listening to the podcast. How do you build the capacity of your team around you to be comfortable with feelings of not knowing and ambiguity as a young teacher coming into the profession, they're usually the master of their knowledge. They're a wealth, they're skilled in their area. We're asking them to take on a very different way of uh, being in that position of teacher or educator. So how do you support a person through that as well? That speaks to identity and self. And, you know, you talked about culture is always evolving. Identities also always evolve. They're constantly shifting. We're constantly being and becoming who we are. But if you are a teacher who sees your value as in your content knowledge and your knowing deeply those things that you can then help others to know and learn deeply, then it's 
very confronting to think about the fact that that's no longer your value and and that your value is perhaps to be alongside someone or to ask good questions or to take someone to a space outside of your space. It's a very different way of thinking about yourself as a teacher. Completely so. And it can be a really, as I said before, it can be a really tough space, especially acknowledging kind of a, a sense of loss. If you're asking somebody to give something up, if, if you've been a teacher of, let's pick another, I always pick math, so I'm going to pick something else. You've been the design technology, the cooking teacher, you know, and you're very good at your lasagnas and your poached eggs. Suddenly, you know, you've been asked to put all of that aside and step into a space of, of working through an inquiry-based project where you're having to collaborate with other educators, acknowledging that there's a sense of loss in there. You've been actually asked to give something up in order to step into this space of not knowing. That's really confronting. So as, as leadership, we have all these, these ideas of where we want to move education forward, but how do you build that culture among your people to be able to embrace a new way of, of approaching education um, and one that supports them on that journey and values them for, for their, their expertise and their knowledge, but also recognises that they will need to adapt and change and respond. We're in the business of learning in education and of being learners as well as potentially those who are supporting, you know, learners who are students. So I think that what you're talking about, about developing a culture of learning for all and vulnerability for all. It's, I think it's interesting when teachers are in a professional development day and they're sitting down in kind of a classroom sort of environment often for a day and they think, oh, gee, this is so boring. And because being a teacher is very different to being a student. If yeah. you're, you know, the one who's active and the one who's speaking and the one who's, you know, pacing up and down your classroom, yeah. it's a very different experience to being the person at the desk listening to that. And it's always a nice reminder for teachers about, oh, gosh, being at school all day, every day, if this is what it's like, is actually really tough. Mm. Uh, And it's not an active and necessarily engaging and exciting place to be, even though the teachers might be feeling excited and engaged about what they're talking about or teaching about. So I think that, you know, knowing what it's like to be a learner and a student and what you're also talking about is that adaptability that I think was accelerated a little bit in terms of COVID and the pandemic how fast we needed to adapt and uh, and did amazing things in that time in education. But there's been a lot of conversation now around are we snapping back or are we working forward from what we learned? What are your thoughts about the last couple of years and what we have learned and, and where people maybe are doing really exciting things versus what you might be observing about what people have or haven't learned from the, the last couple of years in education? Yeah, fantastic question. Hand on heart. I feel like this point in time right now to be in education, I couldn't think of a career as a better place to be. Like we are right at a, a tipping point of, of change. There are comments in the media, I will say, that probably talk a bit more about reverting a bit to the past. But what we're actually seeing in schools is is, is not that. We're, we're seeing, especially among, among some of the younger staff that are coming in, younger staff that are really values-driven, that are a deep awareness that we live in this far more interconnected world. And as I mentioned before, we're working on global issues and building the capacity of people to not only understand them, but have the capacity to be able to respond to them. And this is what we have coming into the workforce. Like, what a dynamic group, <laughs> these these younger, younger educators coming in, possibly... We have a challenge, though, because although we have these amazing practices happening, and I'm thinking of industry partnerships, far more project-based learning that is deeply integrated into community. I can give a couple of examples in a moment. But we're competing against a narrative that we see in the media that is trying to pull us back to the past. I remember quoting recently in a a conversation I had, I'd looked at uh, the media in December, 
and the number of reports around NAPLAN and exams and conformity and hierarchy and trying to pull us back to where we were two years ago. And I remember reading this and thinking, no, that's in complete contrast to what I'm seeing in our schools. Mm. And so it's about how collectively we together as educators in our schools create a narrative that possibly needs to rewrite what we're hearing in our media because the reality is our our politicians and our bureaucrats do listen to these powerful voices and make decisions based on them. Yet when we have this opportunity to come together as educators, be it through podcasts and other mediums that we have available to us, we start to see that there are some amazing things happening in our schools. I'm thinking of a recent virtual tour I did over at Cedar College in WA and speaking to Principal Rocky Collins out there of some of the partnerships with industry uh, for his young years, 10s, 11s and 12s. We've got just such enthusiastic young staff coming in and when we host through Future Schools our, our tours and our webinar conversations, constantly kind of come away from these just feeling inspired if this is where education is is this if it's in the hands of some of these young educators that we're seeing then we've got it in a really good place this is an exciting time to be in education and you have a really really interesting view of all of that because you do take these quite regular virtual tours of schools that are doing really interesting things so you would have heaps of examples of schools that are trialing things building things piloting things mm. as you reflect on those kind of tours that you take people would be explaining what it is that they're implementing but why and how that's come about i'm imagining a lot of that is to do with a knowledge of the future as well as a deep knowledge of their students but what do you see as those through lines of either the why or the how of what schools are doing in this space? Because everyone's actually doing quite different things. Like, that, yes, there's partnerships, there's micro-credentials, there's thinking about timetabling differently. There's lots of people that are, do- that are looking at those kind of bits and pieces. But is there a foundation stone that people are working from or is there a similarity in some of their, their language or their thinking or is it actually quite different as you look around? That's a fantastic question. On the surface, I would say yes, it looks really different and um, across future schools. you know, We're well over 100 different schools and to walk through the front door of each of these schools, yes, they all look completely different. However, you know, you just go below the surface a little bit and there's this real common desire to come together and just go, what is it that we're noticing? What is actually happening? What are we responding to? And how does this impact how we approach education? So across the future schools, the leaders that I get to speak with are deep awareness that things are moving and shifting. I'd say the common thing that I see across all of these schools is being far more values-driven, possibly moving away from a culture which was maybe achievement culture, which I think has driven a lot of education in Australia, to far more going, okay, what is it that uh, our young people are, are, are asking for? What, is the, what are the values? What are, what are the challenges that they're facing into? And how do we build an education, as I mentioned right at the beginning, that's far more human-centred, full of joy? fulfillment passion like imagine if they were the that's how we start that's how we look at school that's where you you want your young people to finish up Mm -hmm. you're talking about these really interesting tensions but I suppose also influences so you talked about the sort of political systemic bureaucracy piece which is often about compliance achievement and measuring very very simplistic measures of achievement of schools such as you know NAPLAN and ATAR data that can easily be splashed on a league table or on a in an article but then you're also talking about what students are asking for and their parents are asking for and if 
if what they're asking for from a school is actually not a school that has that plan of X, but actually a school that offers a different value proposition of one of values and purpose and experience and preparing for the real world, less measurable in those bite-sized media narratives, but actually something that I think is is really taking off in terms of what parents and students are asking for and then perhaps uh, what schools are providing and then at some point perhaps what politicians <laughs> and the media might consider. I think that's sort of the last bit to turn, isn't it, uh, once the critical mass happens elsewhere? Absolutely. You know, schools are places of community and we want our young people, and I think about the young people in my life, I want them to feel valued. I want them to feel a sense of belonging and I want them to feel a, a sense of connection because when we feel that we are valued, when we feel that we belong and when we feel connected, we feel empowered. And when we feel empowered, that's when we see a ripple effect of change. But we can't have it without that. We have to, communities are about that, of nurturing that belonging, values and, and acceptance. That's a wonderful vision for education empowerment through connection and belonging. You talked earlier about some of the stats around young people and uh, their experiences and their potentially their mental health and things like that. And I think that if we come back to holding each person in our community, knowing each person, seeing each person, that's a really nice place to be. Absolutely. You talked earlier about being an art teacher for some years. And I know that your master's research with the University of Melbourne focused on increasing opportunities for students to engage in states of flow. So it's kind of beyond values. It's more about that state in which we feel like we don't notice time going by because we're having such an amazing an amazing time doing what we're doing. And you are an artist and an art teacher, initially anyway. I, I, my first degree is in fine art as well, so I, I have a, a resonance with this. I'm wondering what you see as the role of creativity in education or what we can learn from creativity or the creative arts or this idea of flow, which isn't, which isn't creativity itself, but often that's where you find yourself. It's mm-hmm. why when someone's in a woodwork room or an art room and the bell goes, they don't stop, as opposed to perhaps in another class, they, they pack up before the bell goes. What do you think is the value of considering creativity for students and teachers and schools? I think we might need to do a whole other podcast on this. <laughs> <laughs> the work of Chick Semihai and the concept of flow, I came across that in early 2000. You know how to say his name. That's that's impressive in itself. That's a master's thesis right there. That's it. Mihai, there you go. Mihai Chick Semihai. But back to the question around creativity. I had a, an experience a couple of years ago where when I was still in the classroom and up until then I'd only taught really visual arts, filmmaking, anything to do kind of in that field, a bit of media. And then I found myself teaching a history class. Now, no offence to any history teachers, but (laughs) tough gig, firstly. Interesting subject. But what I found at that point was if you are privileged enough to have come through the arts as an educator, constantly you are encouraging your young people to find their point of difference especially in the older years, it's about that of just finding creativity, finding your point of difference and being able to sit with that comfortably as well. It looks very different from from other subjects and I only experienced that when I taught another subject that had some concrete facts and there was a set timeline and it was a little bit more possibly uniform. You're all heading towards the same exam and such a contrast coming from from another side of filmmaking and visual arts. So I often sit and and reflect on that of just the, the creativity allows you the permission to find your own path. It gives you the permission to find your point of difference. 
but it also gives you the permission as well to look at what's come before you and to build on that and to understand it. I think it's around liberating ourselves to be able to be comfortable with a point of difference, not having to be uniform. It's also about deep personal engagement. I've just recently finished, I've had my last lesson with my year 12 literature class and the final assessment that we do together after quite a lot of you know, heavy reading, writing and analysis is that they create something of their choice. It can be anything and it has to express and then they have to explain how it expresses the answer to the question, what has the study of literature taught them about themselves and about the world? Mm -hmm. And so I had pieces of music that students had written and performed. I had videos, I had artworks, I had uh, written pieces, I had series of poetry and it was really that creativity piece was around that personal deep deep personal engagement with what it was that they had learned and what that had taught them and how that might have changed who they are and the other thing creativity makes me think of is that idea that you said permission but I think also permission to do things differently permission to try things and to fail at them and to have a go and to come up with a prototype of something and have it not work uh, go through those sort of processes because art is actually a very process driven thing to do absolutely I wonder if a good question to ask ourselves as teachers would be at what points in my classroom are my students in flow? 100%. And ourselves as educators as well of, um, you know, there's nothing more rewarding than being in a classroom and walking out of there and just going, it all just worked. You had that state of flow. I often, early on when I wrote this paper for my master's, um, this is way before I went to, to green school and think global school, but I can remember having a discussion at university of just like, let's just get rid of bell times. Like how, <laughs> can't be that hard. If we didn't have bell times, then we would have plenty of opportunity to, to slip into states of flow and engage in states of flow that weren't wrenching us back at the sound of a bell or a timetable. One of the schools I worked at, Green School in Bali, on a on a Wednesday, we had Jalan Jalan, which translates into to walking, to jour- to have a journey. And this day was completely off timetable. Um, and I used to just open the art studio and we'd open at eight thirty in the morning, and we'd finish up around four o'clock in the evening. And students would kind of weave in and weave out um, and working on different projects. And it was probably one of the most, when I think across my career, it was probably one of my favourite days of, of all of the places where I've worked, having that Wednesday, just uh, those deep conversations and being able to be have autonomy over your own time. Amazing. I think that is the ironic thing, especially as students get into their senior secondary years, is they are essentially told when they can do all kinds of things, uh, as opposed to having autonomy over when you eat, when you move, when you do something different when you move on from a task, all those kinds of things are very, very regimented still. Do you have any other cool examples of where you see schools doing things differently or in interesting ways, in ways that are sort of student-centred and futures-focused? Yeah, I'm based in Victoria. Uh, So anyone listening from here, um, Assumption College, absolutely go and have a look at the electives program uh, up at Assumption College. That one jumps to mind. I'm trying to think of one in each different state. (laughs) We were recently in New South Wales and went up to Macquarie College. And for me, it was actually the makerspace and got to spend, we took a tour up there and and the students, teachers aside, it was the the students that led us a tour and explained exactly how they were using the the makerspace. That was powerful. 
if we pop down to Adelaide, I'm loving the work happening out at Sassy, based in the, the heart of the city and just so... the. As I'm saying it, the word that comes to mind is just love, um, this real authentic relationship uh, across the student bodies, uh, the student body and student staff body, just a real connection, a real, when I think of human-centred education, if you're down in Adelaide, go and have a look at um, SASE and just down the road there, uh, the wellbeing program at St. Clair's in, in Adelaide as well. If you're down in, in Tasmania, out at Peregrine School, which is a beautiful little community school there with Imogen leading that school. Uh, and again, not only when we talk about soft signals, when you walk into a school like Peregrine, it is just a beautiful environment to, to be in. Cornish College with Design Futures, um, they're a year 12 program. We've recently done a, a virtual tour out there. Oh, my goodness. And I think this is it, Deb, you know, as I'm sitting here, that more and more schools are jumping into mind. There are just so many good practices happening out there. We recently looked at Perth College and their their SPARK program. I would just encourage people just to have a look at other schools and have a look at their programs. Come and speak with us at Future Schools so that we can connect you with people and, and let you know of some of the really innovative directions schools across Australia are taking. And you are one of those connectors. You connect people together who are doing these things and I think there's that the snowball that happens when people know what each other are doing. If there was a Jen Buchanan school, what might be how you would organise your school? What would it be? If you could have a blank slate, here's a, I don't know if you need a site or a building or a, what it might be, but if you were to build your own school from the ground up, do you have any ideas about what it could look like? Oh, I have plenty of ideas, but I would probably step aside. I'd get out of the room and hand it over to young people. There's way too many adults designing schools and not enough young people. So that would be my answer to that question. I'd just get out of the way. I'd go and make myself a cup of coffee, come back and listen to my young people about what they need. Mm. This term, actually, our year eights are going to be designing their future schools. So perhaps I'll go and listen to what they have to say about what school should look like. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Jen, we're coming to the end of our time together, so I'm going to move us to the final five questions, uh, which I call the quick fire in lightning round. Excellent. The first of which is, what is something unexpected that many people might not know about you? Well, I did study animation for a time. I was going to be an animator instead of a, an educator. Um, I just returned from working with the UN over in Timor-Lorise and got back to Australia and decided, I said, I'm taking a year off and I studied animation. My film made it to a couple of little festivals, but that was about it. Really, it makes for a great dinner conversation that I got to be an animator at one point in my life or podcast interviews, but that's about as far as it went. <laughs> I'm sure there's some usefulness where that comes up sometimes. <laughs> and you think, oh, I learned this in my year of animation. It, it does. And I've actually got the, the two little puppets from a stop motion that I made that sit on my shelf here of a reminder just just don't take it too seriously. Life is, is meant to be fun and enjoyed. How about something that's currently on your desk? I have a bottle of water purifying tablets. I flew in last night from Darwin where I've just finished the, the Jatbula hike, uh, so a 65-kilometre pack hike that traverses across the, the western edge of the, the Arnhem Land escarpment. It was definitely one of the toughest hikes I've done, but also one of the most spiritual hikes I've been on um, and literally walking in the footsteps of generations of the Jarawan people. Hot temperatures, though, extreme 40s most of the day meant getting up in the middle of the night, uh, getting up at 3 a.m. for a 3.30 a.m. hike. 
but we had everything swimming in water holes wildlife including buffaloes and freshwater crocodiles and snakes but I think for me the the highlight was just the the rock art just absolutely stunning so Mm. yes water purifying tablets (laughs) not always on your desk but but right now they are (laughs) with hiking what does that give you like that sounds like something that you do from time to time that you build into perhaps your year what is it that Mm. that gives to you for yourself Two of the things I bring into my life is hiking and, and running. And when I say running, I possibly mean, mean shuffling. Um, but it is, <laughs> I, I think for me, hiking is about being fully present. You know, when you're on a six, we were on a five-day pack hike, so you're carrying all your, your own food and you're carrying enough daily water, you're filling up at water holes. And really, life just becomes simple. You, you can't be <laughs> blogging on LinkedIn or checking your emails. All you're worried about is putting one foot in front of the other, getting your meal together when you get into camp. On this hike, it was about keeping cool, keeping out of the heat of the day, keeping temperatures, trying to keep your body temperature down. It's a real back to basics and just being for me, this hike in particular was just that real deep connection to land. Like I, I commented afterwards of I felt like I'd been invited into someone's home, which essentially I had. Mm. Um, the fact that the Jawan people will share this land and let, let us come and walk this, I just felt a huge privilege. I got to walk the song lines of generations of people, thousands and thousands and thousands of years of generation of people have walked this escarpment and you can't help but come back from an experience like that and, and feel feel changed. Um, so, yes, the, the hiking for me is about just resetting when life gets a little bit complicated or you're overthinking stuff. <laughs> Going out for a hike, just put simplicity back and, and the beauty back in life of, of really what it's all about. Mm, an interesting challenge for everyone to find ways in which to be present and to remember what really matters, strip away the rest. Yeah. If you can wake up each morning and find something ahead in the day that gets you up out of bed and gets you excited, you're winning. That's it. Find your purpose. Find what it is that will get you up each and every day and give you a sense of excitement and enjoyment. I see you in your work at Future Schools. It definitely seems like something that gets you out of bed in the morning, the work that you do. Absolutely. I am so lucky. I just get to to spend time with the most inspiring people. We mentioned NAPLAN earlier. No one ever phones me up to talk about NAPLAN. <laughs> so, so there you are, uh, you're winning. <laughs> it's a pretty nice space and the conversations and the people I get to, to speak with and the people that get to connect together as a community through future schools we get to have these fantastic conversations, but not only conversations, because it's not so much about the words you use, it's the actions that you put in place each and every day and being connected with people that are doing the work, the actions each and every day to make a difference. Now that's a pretty powerful community to be part of. Who is someone that inspires you in the work that you do? There's a number. Because having travelled so much, I often get asked, you know, what is it or where is it in the world that's been your your favourite place to visit? And it's never, ever, ever about the places. It's about the people. And I've been lucky. I've met the whole range. You know, I've been fortunate enough to meet people, you know, the big names like the Jane Goodalls of the world or the Banky Moons and the Dalai Lamas. Absolutely, yes. And they are super inspiring people. But then I've also met people, um, I think about this, group of women that I used to walk past every morning when I lived in Mumbai that would come in and teach um, this group of street children every morning 
And in doing so, it gave these young children a greater chance to continue their education in school. Or I think about ex-students of mine, Clover Hogan, and she's, you know, she's leading the charge on bringing awareness of climate change into companies around the world. More local, Margot Amwar, she's listening out at Cornish College. She was my ex-head of department. And she's the reason I ended up at Green School in Bali. She was pivotal to that journey, which sent my life on a completely different di- uh, direction. And then more recently, I'm, I'm truly inspired by the work of um, Peter Hutton and David Runge, the co-founders and co-directors of Future Schools. They've brought together this organisation as an opportunity to bring together like-minded people that are leading the change in making education more purpose-driven and human-centred for all of us, staff, students and, and the wider community. So not just one person. It takes a community. It takes a village. <laughs> community is the thread. It keeps coming back today. What is one thing that you have coming up that you're excited about? Well, I get to go to Perth next month. So I'm very excited. Who's, uh, not, who's to... not excited to come to Perth? <laughs> exactly. Best place in the world. Hidden secret. No, but I am truly excited. Heading to um, Perth. We've got two things coming up. We've got a future schools tour. Um, So every term, we host a tour to a different state where we go and visit innovative schools in in that state. And it's also a wonderful opportunity to to network with colleagues from different sectors, uh, different schools and from different parts of Australia. And then also in November, um, heading across to Perth for the Innovation in Education Festival. And I've got a, a keynote on day two um, on some of the topics we've been talking about today. And finally, Jen, if you were to distill your current thinking about education to its essence, what is one thought or resource that you would leave listeners with? I guess just get comfortable with change. As I get older and move through my decades, experience tells us what was important in the past. It does tend to shift and evolve and, and change. and no one can predict the future, especially us in education. We can't predict uh, a future of education that is also evolving, changing and shifting. However, what we can predict with certainty is that there's going to be more change and there's going to be an emergence of opportunities and an unfolding of experiences we can't yet even begin to imagine. And if, if we look back over the last two years, we've been through this period of intense change But what we were able to do, we were able to adapt and respond to what was an extreme situation. And for many young people and for many educators, we flourished in that space. Uh, What's important now is not to springboard back to what we perceive to be the comfort of the past. Instead, keep looking forward. And as we look towards next year, 2023 and beyond, to reflect and to acknowledge there's going to be more change. And it's a world that's becoming, as mentioned a few times, more global. We're going to be exposed to more diverse perspectives. And it's a world that is becoming increasingly one that transcends those borders, those traditional borders. So recognising with that change, the young people we work with will increasingly need the skills and the competence to work across communities of different cultures. um, And they'll be working to solve complex problems that will not have simple solutions. In essence, if I was to get it down to a few words, getting comfortable with change. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jen, for joining me today on the Edu Salon. You're more than welcome. Always a delight to speak with you, Deb. Thank you for having me here today. Thank you for listening to the Edu Salon podcast. You can join the conversation by subscribing to this podcast and sharing it with your network, by giving this podcast a rating or review, and by connecting with Deb and her guests on social media.